Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. We're reading from James 4.13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Thanks, Joe. Sorry, Art. So, well, hello, everybody. My name's Mike, and this is Ivy. Um, We're doing a sermon together tonight, which should be fun. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. Yep. So we've been here at the night service for quite a few years between us. I work as a social worker, Mike's an architect, and we've been married for almost two years at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so as you would have just heard, we are reading from James today, and we're reading a passage that for many of us is probably pretty confronting. Um, And so I just wanted to start with a little bit of a caveat. We hope that all of us here tonight who are rich by the world's standards can respond with open ears and open hearts to what James might be saying to us. Um, Yeah, there's a temptation, I think, to respond defensively and we hope that we we don't do that. Um, But also there's a great hope in all of this. God cares for the poor, for the marginalised, for the vulnerable. And we, yeah, we believe in a God who, who cares about people and who one day will bring about justice. Um, and that's a great hope that we have. So let's get into it. So many of us are at an age where we're wrestling with big questions about how our lives should go. Kinds of things like, you know, what should I do for a job? Should I get married one day? Where do I want to live Should I travel before I settle down? Yeah. And underneath these questions is a deeper question of what does it mean to actually live a good life? You know, it seems like a simple question, but it's been a vexed one for philosophers throughout, uh, you know, a long time. (laughs) Um, Socrates thought that the good life was the examined life, which leads to virtuous living. And that's not a bad take, really. Yeah, so in his epistle, which we're reading today, James gives us his account of the good life. And just taking a step back, if you don't 
know him. Um, James was the brother of Jesus. He was one of Jesus's early disciples. Um, and the early disciples, having encountered Jesus and um, his resurrection, went out and formed churches. And this is from a letter that he wrote to a whole range of churches. And so he writes in a genre that scholars call paranasis. I'm hoping I got that right. And what it is, is it's a really strong ethical address aimed at trying to persuade someone to live a certain way or to do something. It's the sort of speech you might receive when your mother really, really wants you to wash the two-minute noodle bowls that are stacking up in your room. Nick Lamey, we're looking at you. (laughs) And so James also really, really wants his readers to live a certain way, to live a certain life. How, though? Yeah, well, he says, and we're flipping back in James in chapter 1, verse 4, that he wants his readers to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He thinks that living a good life is aiming for perfection. And that's a big ask. You still struggle to put your jocks in the hamper. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But luckily for me, when James is talking about perfection, he doesn't mean being sort of completely scrupulous in everything you do necessarily. The word which we translate to perfection is closer to the idea of wholeness. For James, living the good life is pursuing a holistic life. And it probably sounds a little bit esoteric, but what James means by all of this is, is it's very simple. It's a life that's devoted to God and that knits together both faith and good works, good behaviour. Yeah. And on the other hand, the opposite of that wholeness is what James calls double-mindedness which is where we try to chase our own desires as well as God's way. And he gets really passionate when he's talking about this stuff. He's trying to persuade his readers away from this double-mindedness. He famously warns them that if they divorce their faith from their works, they end up with a dead religion. Yeah, and so James's epistle, it identifies for us, which is really helpful of James, a range of dangers that may pull us down this track. And right, interestingly, right at the top of his list is the pursuit of money. How we use money is probably pretty far down our list of things that we would consider spiritually dangerous. But James can't stop talking about it. In fact, 45% of the letter has an economic theme. It's really interesting. The passage we're looking at today is the climax of all of this discussion. And James addresses two groups of people who were, you know, the main groups of wealthy people in his period. And so firstly, he addresses people who are travelling around and doing business. They're merchants. And in the first century, trading was seen as a way that you could get rich really quickly. And then he addresses the rich, he refers to in chapter 5. He's talking to wealthy landowners um, who made their fortune by employing day labourers to work on their large estates. And we see that both these groups are driven to make money because they think it will grant them a good life. James begins by quoting the merchants in verse 13 when they say, 
today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business and we will make money. The quote shows what drives their lives and it's pretty simple. They want to make money. We can, see, we can safely assume that the lifestyle of the rich, um, that they have a very similar drive. They're willing to use all means necessary to make money. They hoard, they exploit, and they live lives of luxury. And so in our passage, James is calling these people out. He even pronounces judgment on the rich, which might seem scary, but we'll talk about that later. And why? Because he knows that their drive to make money, their pursuit of wealth, will result in dangers for them that will actually pull them away from the good life. And so tonight, we're going to explore these um, dangers in more detail. So first, we'll see that pursuing money has deluded them into having false beliefs. Yep. And then we're going to look and see that the pursuit of money is causing devastation to others through their actions. And we'll see that eventually pursuing money actually leads to their downfall. And then we're going to see how we can also be susceptible to these dangers and consider what, what we might do to avoid them. Yeah. So first up, the merchants and the rich are convinced of these dangerous delusions caused by their drive to make money. The merchants have this arrogant kind of overconfidence in their ability to control their lives. They think that their schemes and their plans are actually going to help them overcome life's inevitable fragility. And they're ignoring God's will, is what the passage says. So in verse 13, we see this overconfidence of the merchants. They decide where they'll go, when they'll go there, how long they'll stay in that place. And they're certain about the outcome of these plans. They will make money. In verse 14, James points out the absurdity of this kind of confidence. He thinks misplaced. For one, he reminds them that they don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And so if they can't predict tomorrow, how can they possibly think that money's going to secure their long-term futures? And then he goes on to say that they are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So they've forgotten the obvious truth that their lives are fragile, could be taken at any moment. So the rich in chapter 5 have a really similar delusion going on. Just like the merchants, they seem to believe that their wealth will be everlasting, secure their futures. And in verses 2 and 3, James reminds them that their wealth will degrade. Moths will eat their clothes and their gold and silver will rust. That's a really weird image, Ivy, because gold and silver don't actually rust. Yeah. Did you know that? <laughs> so James is, I guess, showing in this picture that even the elements that they consider most incorruptible in this life, they can fail us in the end. So James is making a cause that all the effort that the merchants and the rich have put into becoming wealthy could be reduced to nothing in the blink of an eye. A huge bank account can't protect them from the inevitable fragility of life. So the merchants, they're also ignoring God's will. 
In verse 15, chapter 4, it says, Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. So rather than living in reference to God's will, they are arrogant about their own plans, and this arrogance is described as evil. The fact that they give no reference to God in their planning is evidence of another dangerous delusion, that they don't really believe he's in control of their lives and certainly not over their finances. So this reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 6 when he says, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. In James's story, the wealthy serve money. It's their reference point and it's what their decisions are made after. They think that it will give them security. And this is truly dangerous. They're placing their bets, I guess, on something that's inevitably unsure. James would call this the double-mindedness. And we'll see later that it doesn't lead to a good, holistic life. So, to sum up our first point, the pursuit of money has deluded them into a dangerous overconfidence They ignore life's fragility and money gives them a false sense of security which has caused them to forget God. Yeah, so next, oh, sorry, bit of an issue with our slides there. So next, in chapter 5, verses 3 to 6, James shows us that the drive of the rich to make money leads to behaviour that causes devastation for other people. And so first, James thinks that the rich are hurting others because they have too much money. He says in verse 3 that they have hoarded so much for themselves. He doesn't just think that being sort of too obsessive about money is, you know, bad. He actually thinks that they have too much of it. So why does he care how much they have? Well, he cares because their wealth isn't actually being used for anything good. It's completely static. It's useless. It's just sitting around. And as verse 2 and 3 point out, it's rotting away in storehouses when it could be used compassionately to serve other people. And so then second, James thinks that the way that the rich are making their money is also causing devastation for other people. And the reason they have so much wealth in the first place is because they are refusing to properly pay their, la- their labourers, their day labourers who are working on their farms. And in this period, poor rural day labourers were often only employed for a day at a time. And these exploitative arrangements allowed the landowners to make very large profits And it meant, though, that they were forced to live hand to mouth. And so then the final way that we see that they use their money, sorry, the final way that we see that they're causing devastation for others is by the way that they actually are using their money. In verse 5, James says that you have lived on earth in luxury, in self-indulgence, and that you have fattened yourselves. It's pretty powerful imagery. 
The rich are wasting their wealth on their pleasures. And all the while they're surrounded by these poor people who are actually crying out with hunger pains. And so James thinks that having, you know, far above what you need means that other people have to go without. And this was a very common belief in the first century world because people, they didn't think that the economy could just keep growing endlessly. They believed that goods existed in limited amounts. Um, And so there was only so much to go around. If everyone just kept what they needed for self-sufficiency, then, you know, things would be relatively balanced. But if you lived in luxury, then it would mean that people um, who were poor would go without the very necessities of life. And so that's our second danger that we see in the passage. The drive for money is leading to self-serving economic behaviour, which is having these bad impacts for other people. Mm. And so we see that the drive for money is causing the rich and the merchants to become deluded, confused, and to actually cause devastation for other people. And then James goes on to warn them actually about the consequences of this behaviour. Will they enjoy a good life in the end? Maybe a nice retirement, playing golf? No, unfortunately. James warns the rich that in the end, their drive for money will lead to their downfall. So in chapter 4, James describes the consequences for the merchants. They think their schemes will protect them from the uncertainty of life. But James shows that their behaviour is foolish. Their lives and their possessions are like a mist. Their drive for money is a fool's errand. And it can't give them lasting benefits. James ups the ante in chapter 5. He sharply condemns the rich. He starts by telling them to weep and to wail because miseries are coming upon them. The Old Testament prophets, they often use these kinds of words to describe God's judgment of the unrighteous. The rich think that money will give them a good life, but James is warning them that their behaviour will result in their judgment. And so what will this judgment look like, Ive? Mm, Well, chapter 5 is laced with these really vivid images um, that flesh out the picture and it's, it's very serious stuff. The first image that we get of God's judgment comes when James reminds the rich that their gold will corrode. He says in verse 3 that the corrosion will actually testify against them and it will eat their flesh like fire. It's a really interesting image. He pictures their rusting wealth as actually a witness against them at the final judgment. That all their wealth that is laying around, it will actually be evidence of their neglect of the poor in their lives. The very thing that the rich trusted will take the stand and betray them. We also have James's reference to the last, the last days in verse 3. So James thought that they were living in the last days thousands of years ago. He thinks the fact that they're hoarding at this time makes it especially bad, all this wealth that they have. So what are the last days? So it's, that, it's the era before Jesus returns to judge evil 
in this life and to fully establish his kingdom of love and justice. So James thought that Jesus could return at any minute. So with this in mind, it's crazy to hoard possessions for yourself. So James then tells the rich in verse 4 that the Lord Almighty hears the cries of the poor. Hears the cries of the poor people that are being exploited. And the word Almighty is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Sabaoth. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that somewhat right. Which means hosts or armies. And it pictures God as this, this powerful leader of a great army. And he's making it clear that God comes to defend the poor, ready for battle. The rich think they act with impunity. But exploiting the poor drives them into the battle line of God Almighty. So finally, James tells the rich that they have fattened themselves in the day of slaughter. And the Old Testament prophets often depicted God's judgment as the devastating slaughter of all evil and injustice. So James is saying that the day of slaughter is actually upon the rich and yet they're incurring more guilt by wasting their wealth on luxuries in the last days. James is showing us that this is self-destructive. They're like cattle that are fattening themselves to be killed. So these images of God's judgment combine to give us a really intense picture. Mm. So do you think God's being a bit mean, Ive? Mm. Yeah, I think, I think what the passage is doing is it shows how deeply God actually cares about the poor and the most vulnerable. He's not apathetic towards their suffering. He takes their side and will right the wrongs done to them. So that's the last danger. The rich think that their money can secure their future, but in the end, their drive for money doesn't serve them at all. A day will come when the mighty Lord Sabaoth will deal with them and it will spell their downfall. Pursuing wealth not only results in behaviour that's devastating to others, it is also extremely dangerous and destructive to us as well. So, it's really confronting. It's very clear about the dangers of pursuing wealth and it might make us really uncomfortable. But I think we need to apply these teachings to our own lives. So hang on, Ive. I want to stop us there for a bit and play the devil's advocate. Because at this point, I think often we hear in church, people try and assure us that despite having lots and lots of stuff and being really wealthy, that these words don't actually directly apply to us. And so, for instance, I've heard over and over and over in church that it's not just, it's not, you know, just pursuing money that's the problem. It's just if you love money, then it becomes a problem. So it doesn't really matter what I do with my money or how much I have or, you know, how I make it as long as I don't love it. Mm. And I've heard this lots too. I'm sure we all have. And I don't think it's quite true. There are passages in the Bible that criticise the love of money. 
But the New Testament also contains many strong warnings that wealth itself is the danger. It's not for nothing that Jesus warned in Matthew 23. I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So, but some people also think that these merchants and the rich in our passage today weren't members of the Christian community. And so that means that we Christians don't need to worry about the implications of the passage. And I I would say, regardless of whether the merchants or the rich are inside or outside of the Christian community, there's no reason to think that this teaching about money isn't also applicable to our wealth and our lives. I think it gives God's general view of money, that money can pull even us in dangerous directions, even if we profess to follow Jesus and we rock up to church. So many people also say that our text doesn't necessarily implicate all the rich, but rather just a special category of rich people. They say it's only referring to bad rich people. Which is interesting because James, he speaks about the rich without any qualifiers. It's simply merchants and the rich. So we have to be really careful not to put words in James's mouth to try and wriggle out of these uncomfortable passages. Okay, I concede, Ive. <laughs> it seems that our objections don't have much basis in the passage. Our attempts to try and dock it, duck, duck and dodge, they don't really get us anywhere at the end of the day. And so we want to try and do something a little bit scary, maybe uncomfortable today. We want to take James for his word. And it's scary because we are rich. Living in Australia, we are some of the wealthiest people to have ever lived in all of history. You know, Ivy and I, we rent a very nice unit in a very nice area. We have a a good car, which did recently get keyed, which was sad, but (laughs) it still goes. We have, and we have access to our parents' Netflix, Disney Plus and BritBox. We do contribute Amazon Prime to the equation, but we get it for free via our internet deal. But all of this suggests that the message of James to the rich, it's also one for us, for me and you, Ive, too. It means we need to ask some hard questions of ourselves. What drives us? Is it making money? Are we trapped in the same bad ideas and delusions that the people in the passage were? Have we forgotten that we could actually lose our lives tomorrow? Is our behaviour towards money causing hurt for other people? Do we have way too much wealth? How are we earning our money? Is there an element of violence or exploitation in that process that we justify for our own gain? 
And while we enjoy our luxurious lifestyles, do we even really give a thought for the world's poor? You know, 3.1 million people, children, sorry, die from poor nutrition and hunger every year. And even closer to home, I work with families every day who don't have enough to afford the most basic necessities for life. Um, And this is in our city, you know, because of the cost of living and the huge financial impact it has to escape domestic violence. Yeah. And so we need to let James's message make us a little bit uncomfortable. We need to let it spur us to action because this message bears consequences for us too. Do we reckon with the fact that one day Jesus will return to judge? The drive to make money, the pursuit of wealth, it can't give us the good life that we're after in the end. And it only turns out to be acidic and it leads to our downfall as James shows us. And so the passage, it kind of backs us into a little bit of a corner. We can't run, we can't hide from its implications. So is there a way to avoid the downfall that's facing the rich in the passage? Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's, we've already been through that one, sorry. There is a way. We need to remember that Jesus, uh, James, sorry, he borrowed his harsh language from the prophet's condemnations in the Old Testament. That's a key thing to remember because the prophets, they used harsh language for a purpose and it wasn't to give their audience no way forward. Instead, they were trying to evoke a specific response in their audience. They wanted them to repent. And the word repent is a little bit Christianese. It really just means to change, to turn and change. And James is trying to do something very similar. He wants the rich to repent. In chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, which we have on the screen, James gives us a picture of the repentance of rich people, what, what it should look like. It's very, very interesting. He says that, The rich need to learn to boast, not in their plans, not in their wealth, but in their humiliation or in being made low, some translations say. That's a very interesting image. James pictures repentance as becoming low like the poor and marginalised. Elsewhere in chapter 2, verse 5, James says that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? James is saying that the poor, in fact, despite our worldly wisdom, are the model citizens in God's kingdom. And the rich should emulate their example not the other way around. So how, how, do, how does that happen? Well, firstly, the, the rich must emulate the attitude of the poor. Pursuing wealth has given the rich and probably us a wrong belief 
that we don't need God. However, the plight of the poor makes them immune to that kind of wrong belief or delusion. And of course, we need to tackle poverty wherever we can. But their lack of worldly goods allows them to see their complete dependence on God. And so repentance requires rich people like us to give up that deluded sense of self-sufficiency to really comprehend our complete and utter dependence on God. Absolutely. And now true repentance is not just about our spiritual attitude. It also has implications for our behaviour. It means we make ourselves low by stopping the behaviours that might benefit us but cause devastation for other people. And true repentance will reshape how much money we keep for ourselves. We'll stop hoarding it. Instead, we'll aim to store up heavenly treasures, which Jesus says moths can't destroy. And paradoxically, these heavenly treasures come by pouring out our earthly treasures for the sake of the love of others. So in a way, we actually emulate the poor by becoming poorer, quite literally. And so true repentance will reshape how we make money. It means we'll stop exploiting others in this process for our own gain. Of course, this has direct implications for our actual work lives. So guess what? You know, it's probably not a good idea to be an arms dealer. And that's a crazy example, but there might be parts of our work which normalise exploitation or violence, which we've excused because it's our job. Maybe we need to change things up. And finally, true repentance will reshape how we actually use our resources. It means that we'll stop living excessive lifestyles. To have far more than what we need shows maybe where our heart is and that we're unconcerned about the needs for others. And instead, we will use our resources for good, purposefully for the sake of other people. And this is all starting to sound pretty radical. It is a little bit radical. It actually is. It does require some courageous action on our part. Of course, it does raise practical questions that are very legitimate about how it all plays out. In particular, I think we often want to know where the line is in all of this. When does sufficiency, having enough, not being, you know, causing a problem for other people, become excessive? How many bathrooms, you know, how many en-suites can we have or whatever before it becomes too luxurious? How many overseas holidays before it's too much? When does saving tick over into hoarding? These are legitimate questions, but today we just wanted to put them on the back burner. There'll be plenty of time after to discuss that because we want to focus on how radical James is. We need to be careful that we don't let practicalities water down James's message. Quite often, guess what? The New Testament isn't that practical. <laughs> often, 
I think we, ask, we, we, we sort of jump to asking where the line is because we want to get as close to it as possible, which is probably not quite the right attitude. And you might, you might be asking, why does it matter? Sometimes I think we get a glimpse of something in God's plan for the world and despite maybe some excellent reflection and initial action, we can eventually lose sight of why things like using our wealth well is really important. So what's missing in that situation? Not only does the love of money lead us towards taking devastating paths, it leads us away from this good life, which James is trying to depict to us. When we use money generously, there is enough to go around. There is hope for the poor when those with resources aren't only focused on their own enjoyment. When we recognise the brevity of our own lives and understand the provision of Jesus, we won't have to battle to keep up with the Joneses and sort of be stuck in this cycle of materialism. When our communities love each other as Jesus loved, those without are welcomed in and in our hour of need, that same generosity is available to us. So if we do these things, we'll reclaim wholeness, that good life. Yeah, and that's, that's the good life. But I often feel a lot like the rich person in this passage. I shut my eyes to the misery around me. And, yeah, I guess I need to ask the question, where does the desire to change actually come from? Mm. Does it come by trying really hard? Does it come by willing ourselves to do better? Remember how Jesus thought that he, oh, sorry, James thought that he was living in the last days and that they point us forward to Jesus' return. Well, there's something we didn't mention. The last days, they also point us backwards to the most generous event in history. They give us amazing perspective, a vantage point, because they come after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus, in his life, gives us the most ultimate display of generosity. He was God. He enjoyed the immensities and infinities of his being. He was in heaven. And yet, he came here. He became poor even, oppressed for our sake. He was born in a feed trough. He had no place to lay his head during his ministry. No home. He was even dependent on other people for financial support. And ultimately, he died a horrific death as a criminal in the Roman Empire on a cross. That's about as low as you can go. And he did this to make a new, transformed, good way of life available to each and every one of us. And so when we really grasp that, 
amazing generosity that God has shown us, how can we be greedy? Jesus' generosity compels us to be generous. And that is a certain thing that we can build a good life on. So will you stand with us and we'll just pray. Dear loving Heavenly Father, yeah, we just thank you for the message in James and for what it, I guess, promises us of your hope for the world, of this good life that you envision for this kingdom of love and justice, which is coming again and which you're asking us to partner with you in now. Lord, we just ask for you to help us with our drive to pursue money or the other things of this world that distract um, from what it is that you came to do, what it is you came to free us toward that good life that you have for us. Jesus, we just ask, would you free us? Free us from our temptation to forget you and to try and to protect ourselves in this life through, through wealth or, or other means. We know that it's fraught, Jesus, that life is short and that you've actually come to, to make a way for us out of these different entrapments that lead us away from who you are. But Jesus, would you help us? As a community, would you be shaping us to love others, to not rely on money for our safety, for our future Jesus, would you turn our eyes to you and would you draw us close to yourself and yeah, reveal to us the truth that your death, your salvation for us is something sure that we can build our lives on and anything else is going to take us further away from that, Lord. So thank you for your heart for the poor, for the vulnerable and we repent when we've been a part of their oppression in this world. Would you forgive us, Lord? And would you, yeah, show us a new way as a community in each of our lives, Lord. Show us a new way. Give us your love and give us your compassion and your insight. So thank you so much for the passage, Lord. And, yeah, I just ask, would you help us to receive it? In your name, Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.